Welcome to Grace Story Podcast. We're here to connect you with education, resources, and community that equip you for the journey of restoration. My name's Nate Davison, and I am your host here at Grace Story Podcast. Thank you, listener, for joining us once again for another episode, this time with Scott Disler. I'll tell you a little bit more about him in just a moment. Uh, before I tell you about him, though, if you haven't yet, go on over to YouTube, type in Grace Story, all one word, Grace Story Ministries, uh, and check out the new YouTube channel over there on YouTube. There are new clips being added all the time, highlights from uh, the year 2020 and the year 2021, uh, as far as Grace Story Conference, um, items that you're not going to want to miss out on, uh, and even some of the episodes for Grace Story Podcast starting to pop up over there. So just another avenue to listen to this podcast and find great resources of education uh, from Grace Story Ministries. Uh, So go ahead over to YouTube while you're listening to this episode and uh, make sure you subscribe over there so that you can be the first to know every time a new video hits the Grace Story Ministries YouTube channel. Our guest today is Scott Distler. He is the lead pastor of E-Free Church with campuses in Gaylord, Michigan, Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, and a thriving online campus as well. He is also the Bible teacher on Folks Listen TV, seen every Sunday morning on local CBS affiliates in 53 counties in northern and central Michigan, including the entire UP or Upper Peninsula. Scott is married and has two adult children and three grandchildren, and he is the author of The Cave, When Ministry Becomes Misery. Uh, We're going to talk to him a little bit about his experience and where the passion for that book uh, came out of, and also, what, what does that even mean, The Cave, and how does ministry become misery? A lot to get into, so let's go to that conversation with Scott Disler right now. Scott Disler, thank you for coming on Grace Story Podcast. You're up there in Michigan. Uh, you said right below the the UP or Upper Peninsula. Have you gotten any snow yet this year? Oh, oh yeah. We, we get 150 inches a year, so we're already kicking into that. We've already got probably 24 inches already. And uh, this is, you know, winter is amazing up here. It's beautiful. It's a lot of snow. It lasts a long time. But we do get really nice summers. They're just short. We hope they land on a Saturday. You know, that's kind of how we look at it. Well, I'm glad you clarified that because it was a rumor that you guys are just perennially in a a, a Narnia series or something up there that far north. There's two seasons up here. Nine months of snowmobiling, three months of bad snowmobiling. That's kind of how it works. But (laughs) it is beautiful. Yeah, my uh, my nephew lives up there. Uh, well, well, halfway up, because sort of around the Lansing area, and sure. he is trying to figure out how to move his. He calls it a snow machine. Yeah, uh, he says a little weird too. Uh, but we're we're glad to have you on the program today because you you wrote a book about uh, uh, being in the cave, right? Um, and just right off the bat here. When you're talking about a cave, it's obviously a metaphorical cave. What is this cave? that you are referring to in your book. And what's the title of your book? The book's called The Cave, When Ministry Becomes Misery. Now, now don't let the title kind of throw you. It's also applicable to people outside of ministry. Um, But the cave is that place that you retreat into when you face someone hurting you or the sting of betrayal. And what happens when, when, when that takes place is you retreat into this cave 
And whatever your role is in life, for me it was ministry, it tends to become misery when you're in that cave. So you have a passion for ministry. That's obvious. You're in ministry now. Um, and you're talking about this has taken your passion and what you love and just flipped it on its head where you, well, if it's misery, you probably hate the prospect of having to do the thing you love. And that was exactly what happened to me, Nate. And and this was a little over a decade ago when I was at a church in Pennsylvania and things were going wonderful. The first five years, the church tripled in size from 500 to 1500. We had great plans to keep growing. And I ran into what I call a well-intentioned dragon, that very influential person in the church who, who means well, but doesn't realize how destructive they are. And, uh, and, and that person turned against me and started using a lot of secret meetings and things that I would say are inaccuracies to pick off key board members, key influential people in the church. And I saw all this happening. And the thing that made it even more difficult is this individual, this well-intentioned dragon up until that moment, he had been my biggest cheerleader. And to suddenly have this sting of betrayal take place and this process of a downhill spin that I'm watching happen, that's what drove me into the cave of misery where even though I was still doing my misery, my ministry, it felt like misery. There, there was no joy. Um, I had to make myself do what I always had an easy passion to do because I was in this cave. So something that comes naturally, something that comes easily is now flipped on its head. Can you take us to those those moments as you're you're seeing all this happening, seeing it unfold and you're starting to uh, move into the cave? Uh, what does that look like? Not metaphorically speaking, what does it look like for Scott going through that? What are your actions? How are you still ministering? Are you just going through the motions? Yeah, exactly. Well, there, there were four steps that I think led me into the cave. The first step was fear. When I saw that this was all spinning downhill, suddenly I'm filled with fear. Am I going to lose my ministry? I have a kid in college, another kid ready to go to college. How will I keep them in college? What's my family going to think? Am I going to have to move? Will I lose my house? What will people think about my ministry? All these fears start circulating. And fear led to the next step, which is isolation. The more fearful I got, the more I withdrew from everybody. Um, instead of being that people person pastor in the lobby after services greeting people, I ran to my office. Mm -hmm. I didn't interact with the staff. I was a hermit in my office. I even pulled away from my own family. And then that led to self-pity. Uh, I started feeling really sorry for myself. No one likes me. Everyone hates me. I think I'll go eat worms, that kind of a thing. And suddenly there was also paranoia. If I saw an elder talking to someone in the lobby, I just assumed they're talking about me and it's not good. And those steps finally led to hopelessness where I feel like this is going to crash and burn and there's nothing I can do. So at that point, I did do exactly what you said, Nate. I was going through the motions and here's what made it difficult. I felt like the biggest hypocrite in my church. Because Sunday morning, I'm going up to preach, and I'm putting on a mask like everything's okay. And, and the average person in the church didn't even know there was a problem. But I knew in my heart what I was struggling with. 
And so it was a very misery. It was a time of misery in the cave. By the way, I'm not the first person to find that cave. In the Old Testament, Elijah did. Elijah, one minute's on Mount Carmel calling down fire from God. The next minute he's in a cave going, God, just kill me. He was in the cave of misery. Well, and with that, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure if that story goes out correctly, he ended up taking a nap uh, yeah. at some point, and that seems to cure a lot. Uh, but in this <laughs> instance, that's not gonna that's not gonna do it. And and I want to rewind just a little bit because you sure. mentioned your family, your wife, right. as you're going through this, and you said you pulled away. How is all of this affecting your relationship with your family and your best friend? Yeah. You know, my wife, I, I told her some of what was going on. So she was somewhat aware. She knew it was, it was a problem. What she didn't know was how it was affecting me inside. That I hadn't shared yet. But my kids noticed that I was pulling away from them, at least from a social perspective. Dad wasn't talking much. He was not himself. And uh, one of the biggest turning points for me, Nate, was when I finally let my wife in on everything I was feeling. And that was a turning point because, you know, the Bible says when you get married, you're, you're one flesh. You do like together. I kind of say it's a bad analogy, but you become a two headed monster when you get married. And, and so you're doing it together. And I needed her walking with me. And until I let her totally in on the inside, it was a real struggle. That was probably one of my first steps out of the cave was including my wife. Well, let's go there because we might jump around on this this a lot because, hey, it's just a conversation. But that that's one catalyst there. Um, talking to your wife, opening up. What are what are some of those other catalysts for for taking you and moving you out of the cave? Yeah. Well, when it, when one of the biggest things was along with getting my wife involved, I came to a point where I realized I, I needed to get help because my thinking was getting all messed up. Uh, I was paranoid. I was full of fear. I was reading into everything. And it climaxed when I had my first panic attack, which I had never had before. I have talked to other people who had it. But when I had my first panic attack sitting in the dining room, we had family in for my son's graduation, and I felt like the walls were caving in and all I could do was literally physically run that's when I realized I have to get help. And so that's when I really began to pray that God would lead me to the right Christian counselor who could work with me. And he did. He led me to a great man who had pastoral experience, was a professional counselor, worked primarily with hurting pastors. He helped me to work on my thinking because your behavior stems from your thinking. So what I found in the cave is that it's your thinking that gets messed up. And when you start to work on your thinking, it affects your behavior. It sounds like some of what you're talking about there is, uh, and we had an episode on cognitive behavioral therapy um, with Seth Scott, Dr. Seth Scott, and walking through the de-escalation process to bring your body down so right. that you can actually observe things and, and think about them in a productive way. Um, you, you were just in crisis. You were not able to function. Uh, and, and that makes me wonder, how do you reconcile that feeling of misery in something you love in your passion of ministry and um, crisis in doing something you love that you're called to and your faith? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think what I discovered during that time was that 
your faith becomes even more real during the crisis. And, and that becomes the key. You know, I, I often say to people, even if you just look at, at a Psalm 23, God never promises to keep us from the valley of darkness. He promises to walk with us through the valley of darkness. True. So crisis becomes a key element, I think, to grow your faith. Looking back, I would say I learned more about faith and more about God during my cave experience than anything else I've been through. Well, it seems like for people, um, especially in, in these high um, uh, anxiety-inducing, high-pressure environment of ministry or healthcare or um, you know public safety, all these things where there's a lot of people depending on you for one aspect of their well-being, spiritual, physical, um, all those things. Uh, it seems like you could find yourself in a cave without even trying to go into these feelings, this darkness of, of isolation and all this. Maybe speak, if you could, to the listener, because you got help when you were in crisis. Right. Is there a point where you can look back and say, knowing what I know today, if I saw these signs, I would know, hey, I, I need a little bit more help here. I need a professional before I get to the point where I have to run out of my own house to escape. Exactly. And, and I think for me, looking back, and I've really processed that in my own mind to say, man, if I could go back now, how, what would I do differently? And I think the biggest thing for me is, is when I saw the problem beginning, I made the decision to just let it ride. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in other words, I kind of had this thinking, there's no way he's going to win the others over to his side. And I was wrong. And uh, I wish now I'd have been more proactive when I first saw these problems, when I first started to have the conversations, had the confrontations, I wish I would have dealt with it more proactively because I think when we deal more proactively with crisis, it keeps us from going into the cave. It's when we decide almost in the state of denial to just let it ride that we end up going into the cave. So for me, it would have been being more proactive. <clears throat> it's easier to put out a fire when it's just a match than when it's a blazing inferno. I had the chance to put it out when it was a match. I chose not to. So going back, being proactive would have been a key thing, I think, that would have kept me out of the cave. So, and I want to I want to go further there uh, because someone may be listening and they're thinking, okay, that's great. I would love to be proactive. Um, and, and so I'll look for those signs maybe. Um, and with that, I want to ask you the question of, if I'm not in crisis, is counseling still a good idea? Or maybe phrase it this way in, in your book, The Cave and all that. Why is it important to understand the concept of the cave, even if I'm not in crisis or in the cave? Yeah, good question. I, I really, you, you, you kind of start by saying, is counseling even valuable if you're not in the cave? And I would give a hearty absolute to that. Uh, I wish every pastor had a therapist. I think that would be really good for the church. If every church put into their budget to make sure our pastor has someone he can go talk to. Because again, it's that thinking that's the issue. You know, the Bible says we need to take every thought into captivity. Thinking becomes the issue. And a lot of times I need someone to help me with my thinking because we naturally tend to have wrong thoughts. That, that's a natural thing. 
we, we naturally think the worst case scenario uh, when something comes up. We naturally tell ourselves a story when someone says something innocently and we go, well, they must really be saying this. We naturally do that, especially if you're in a, a, a type of a vocation or ministry where like with being a pastor, you know, one of the things we realize is it's a beautiful picture. A pastor is a shepherd with sheep, but we forget that sheep bite and sheep kick. And I often say the worst part of being a pastor is checking my email on Monday morning. That's the worst part <laughs> of my job. And because of that, we do need someone that we can confide in, that we can kind of sometimes vent to, and that can help us with our thinking and can keep us in check with that. So I think that's a valuable thing on a regular basis for anybody, because I really believe it's your thinking that leads you into the cave. Well, let, let's go down that road a little bit, because you mentioned, uh, and, and I can't help but notice in your story, um, people in ministry are, are a little bit out of control in a way when it comes to some of the necessities of life. Um, you know, insurance uh, homes are usually mostly provided uh, right. by a church organization. Um, your income, all of those main staples that the rest of us may take for granted, guaranteed in a job. Um, and you start to think about a pastor may move from a pastorate three years, five years. You start to hear the ones that are 20. It's like, oh, wow, they stayed a long time. That's crazy. But uh, can you can you speak further to the importance of mentorship and mental health uh, yeah. when it comes to, to pastors? Because we just had an episode with uh, Chrissy Garland where her husband was a pastor who ended up taking his own life because of some of those pressures. Um, And so I want to give you as someone who's been through the betrayal trauma and is a pastor um, and is pastoring currently through hurts from the church um, more than what you've said already and build on it. um, Counseling mentorship. What more would you say to individuals in this type of vocation as far as mental health? I think the first thing is this, you have to make sure that you're finding a way to, first of all, pour into yourself. You know, one of the things that I've learned is that in ministry, I can give, give, give 24 seven, 365 days a year, and still have people left over that need minister to. And what I have to do in my life is I have to create margin. And, And by that, I simply mean, I can't fill my schedule from morning until night every day. I have to create margin so that I have time for some things I need for mental health. A couple of things that work for me, for example. Number one is I have to have time for my marriage, okay? So what I've done in, in my ministry, and, and we have a large ministry, several campuses, uh, and there's always things for me to do, but I set aside one day a week, which is Friday. And Friday is given 100% to my wife. I don't take meetings on Friday. I don't schedule appointments on Friday. I don't go into the office on Friday. I don't open up my computer on Friday. I don't check my email on Friday. Friday is given totally to my wife. Now, my assistant has my number. If there's a crisis, she can call me. Obviously, there's a crisis, I will be there. But just because someone else thinks it's a crisis doesn't mean it's a crisis, right? And I made it, my church knows that. Friday is my wife's day, and and they know that. The other thing that I've done is I have to put into my schedule time for myself physically. So I do a couple things. Number one, 
two days a week, I go to the gym and I work with a trainer. And uh, because if there's one thing pastors do not take care of, it's their physical bodies, right? Because mm-hmm. all we do is go to meetings where there's food, right? We eat fried chicken all the time. That's a pastor. And uh, then the other thing I do is this. Um, I have put into my schedule every day a 90-minute block, and I leave the office for 90 minutes. Why is I take a walk? I like to walk. I take a 90-minute walk every day where I can listen to good sermons, listen to good podcasts, listen to good worship music. So 90 minutes in the middle of my day is like an oasis. Now, the other thing for me is this. I have a couple of friends in my life who are outside of my church, friends that keep me accountable, that I can confide in, that I can vent to, and they can check me on things. We have weekly conversations on the phone or on video calls. Those are things I have scheduled and made a priority. My board knows they're a priority because I need those things in my life if I'm going to be stable in my thinking. Well, it, I'm hearing you, and in, in one of the things I, I hear you saying is you set aside your own Sabbath, yes. uh, which is Friday for you. Because pastors, uh, we forget, they're, they're on the job on what is our Sabbath, uh, right. usually Sunday for most people. Um, so you set aside your own Sabbath. Um, and with that, and I want to circle back to this, but you say no. So in a moment, I want to ask you, how do you say no to things? But I also noticed you do holistic care, mm-hmm. and then you also have a community of, of people that are important right. to you and and uh, can help check you on things. But let's circle back to that um, Sabbath and right. saying no. How do you say no? Because I think that's something that can cross over from from uh, pastors, uh, pastors to um, laymen as well. It's hard to say no, especially in vocations where people you're helping people. Yeah, it is hard to say no, but it's healthy to say no. And that's what we have to keep in mind. Um, and so for me to say, I'm the type of guy that I would like to be there for everything that's going on, but I have no problem when I need to say no. Now, for me to make that happen, I had to do several things. Number one, I had to make sure my board understood while I was doing that. Okay. My board is my protection. So my board completely knows, understands, and supports me in Friday is the day I need to be with my wife. Okay. The other thing is I've communicated that to my church. Uh, my church knows it's come up in sermons and you know things of that nature where they know Friday is the day I spend with my wife and uh, and I have discovered that the majority of the church uh, they view that as a really good thing not a bad thing but I've also had to do some other things because in in a church our size uh, if I were to meet one on one with everybody that called wanting an appointment that's all I would do and so now we have other staff members. Now, what I've done is I schedule in my schedule, I put in blocks a week where I am available to meet with people and my assistant does all of my scheduling and she knows to work within those blocks. And if those blocks are filled up, um, it's kind of like if you call your doctor and say, I just want to come in today, it probably isn't going to work, right? You got to get it. Now, if it's a crisis, if it's an emergency, that's a whole different story. But what we try to do then is to say, can somebody else on staff help you? It doesn't always have to be the lead pastor. So we that's a culture we've developed over the 10 years I've been here. And I'll be honest and say at first that rubbed a few people the wrong way. And uh, But 
over time, what I've discovered is most people really respect it and, uh, and think it's a good thing. But you just have to be open about it. Make it part of the culture. Make it part of the DNA. Make sure they know why. You're not just saying no to say no. Here's why. Yeah, I like the expectation there that you set, but also the emphasis on communication. Yes. Um, I like that a lot. It, again, it's so hard to say no. I, I want to circle back to to your story, though, um, it, with, with the cave. Uh, because as you're coming out of this, you say being somewhere else, 10 years, you've set a culture, all those things, and you have people to keep you accountable. But it seems like at least maybe at the time, if not in recurrence, as things come up that remind you of those moments that moved you into the cave, it seems like bitterness could be something that could be a struggle. Uh, yeah. and, and I want to circle back and, and come to that moment where you're, you're in, you're realizing, Hey, I, I'm isolating myself. Hey, I need help. Uh, you've had panic attacks. Um, and then how did you deal with that with your, your family and, and, and having bitterness towards others? Uh, what was your, your operation in that moment, uh, moving out of that, that story? Yeah, two, two things that I would kind of point to. The first one is this. One of the things that God led us to do, my wife and I, and, and this I, I put in the book because I'm hoping it will help others who go through the same thing, is we needed to pray specifically. And we needed to pray about just that. So here's what we did. Our time during the cave. Now, for the first you know um, six months of our cave experience, we were still at that church. The last six months, we lost our ministry. It's a year-long thing. But we prayed this prayer every day. God, when this is over, whatever it looks like, wherever we are, our prayer is that we'd be, we would be more in love with you than we are now, more in love with each other than we are now, and more in love with the local church than we are now. And the reason we prayed that prayer every day is because we've seen in ministry people go through these hurts and they abandon one, two, or all three of those. Sure. So we prayed specifically that God would protect us from that. And I can say 12 years removed by the grace of God, he answered every one of those prayers. I, I'm more passionate about the church today than ever before, even though the greatest hurt in my life came at the hands of the church. We also prayed this prayer. God, don't let my wife and I both be down on the same day because you have good days and you have bad days. And God answered that prayer too. If I was having a really bad day, my wife could help me or vice versa. But the other thing was this. We had to learn what real biblical forgiveness is. Now, I think we've all been taught wrong since we were kids. Because since we were kids, we were all taught this phrase. Forgiveness means you forgive and you forget. And the truth of the matter is you can't forget. Uh, that doesn't happen. That's not forgiveness. What's forgiveness? Forgiveness says, even though I remember it, even though I want to use it against the person, I choose not to. That's forgiveness. So my wife, by the sovereignty of God, happened to just finish reading a book about the time I went into the cave. It was by R.T. Kendall called Total Forgiveness. And he made this statement in the book. He said, when you keep telling your story over and over just to get people on your side, mm. you make it harder to forgive. And my wife and I grasped hold of that because everyone in the church wanted to hear our side of the story, you know, and we just decided we're not going to tell our story just to get people on our side. We're only going to tell our story 
to people who need to know our counselor, our parents, our kids, uh, the, the board that I, I is looking at me for a new pastor. We have to tell them the story. And we made that decision. And I think it was probably one of the most um, greatest decisions we made in the process. I think it protected us from bitterness because we weren't just telling the story to get people on our side. Now, there are times we still have that temptation to be bitter. Because this happened, and we end up moving from Pennsylvania, a 13-hour drive away to northern Michigan, we no longer live now near our grandkids. Our grandkids are a 13-hour drive away. So like, for example, last week, when my five-year-old grandson had his very first school Christmas program, and I couldn't be there, the temptation to become bitter creeped back up. And I had to deal with it like a temptation and say, I'm going to choose not to go with that. So that tells me, and, and maybe you can talk about this point, um, even with, uh, with grief and, and bitterness and all these big emotions we have in life, um, it's not just something you achieve, uh, you get a trophy for when you're done with it or a ribbon or wh- whatever. It just keeps on coming up. And, and I, I think we talked with Chrissy about what, what, is that, what does that look like for you whenever this journey of restoration seems like it's ongoing, you've gotten professional help and it's like, come on, I just, I need to be done with it. And it's not done. It's always there. What, what does that look like for you? And how do you maybe keep from giving up on your journey of restoration with that? That's good. You know, when, when, when you view what happened, it, it, you mentioned this before, it is a lot like the stages of grief with death, right? You go through the same thing. Now, what I tell people when I, you know, are working with them when they've had a death, I say to them, you'll never get over it, but you do get through it. There's a difference. And I think it's the same thing with this. I don't think I'll ever truly 100% be healed of the wounds that came from my cave experience until I get to heaven. I don't get over it completely, but you know what? I do get through it. And by the grace of God and in time, those hurts become fewer and further between. However, here I am 12 years removed and there's still some times that a reminder will come into my mind or I'll see a post on Facebook or or a board member will say something that takes me back and that fear elevates again. And I got to be careful because suddenly my guard starts going up. I have the tendency to want to start pulling back again and I can't do that. So that never ends. I don't think you ever truly always get over it, but you do, by the grace of God, get through it. Well, and it sounds like you're talking about some of that that remembering uh, of, of things that have happened. Uh, we talked with uh, Byron Keller in his episode about past traumas and things reminding us of that smells, tastes, uh, certain words, music will take us back to good things and bad. Um, we enjoy the times it takes us back to the good things, but man, if we could just do away with all the bad, life would be a lot simpler, but you're right. Uh, heaven, heaven is, is coming, but it's not here yet. Um, exactly. And for me, Nate, it really became, when I first came to the church in Michigan, it was tough for a while. Because the person who was my well-intentioned dragon back in um, Pennsylvania was my elder chairman. So now I come to this new church, and guess who I'm really, really suspicious of? 
my new elder yeah. chairman. And I, I mean, he could say little things and my, my guard would go up. Now, he didn't mean anything by it, but I was really kind of working with him through the lens of the last guy. And it took me a while to really build that trust with him. Well, that's that's exactly what they were talking about in that episode with Byron Keller about the importance of understanding your story completely. Um, and it sounds like you've done that and that helps you work through the lens and you've developed tools to where you don't just write off someone just because of a past experience you've had. Um, right. Man, there, there's a lot to your story. And, and, and I wish I had a question for everything, but maybe I'll just ask you, what's something you didn't expect um, that came out of your story or along your journey of restoration? I think the thing I didn't, two things really. The first one was this. Um, I learned the value of brokenness. You see, we spend all of our life trying to avoid brokenness, right? We, we don't like it. And, and it's not fun. But I learned the value of it. That's why the Bible says a broken and contrite heart God will not cast out. And, um, and, and I think about this. And I think about, and I put this in my book, when Jesus, every time he passed out bread, feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000, Last Supper, always used the same formula. He took the bread. He blessed the bread. He broke the bread, then he gave the bread, all, four, all three times. I think that's often how God works with people. He takes us, he blesses us with gifts and talents and passions. But I think there comes a time in our life that he allows brokenness to take place. Why? So that he can give us a fresh and a new. And I think it was A.W. Tozer who once said, I doubt that God will ever truly use someone until he first breaks that person. And he did that with Moses. He took Moses out of the Nile River, blessed him as the prince of Egypt. Then he broke him on the backside of a desert before he sent him to lead Israel out of bondage. I learned the value of brokenness. And so when I think back to my cave experience, though I would not wish it on my worst enemy, I can look back and say, I'm a better pastor today because I went through that. So that's one thing. The second thing is this. It, I, and I, I didn't expect this. It opened up a whole new realm of ministry for me. There's 2 Corinthians 1 that says that God comes alongside of us in our trials so we can come alongside of others who go through the same trial. And that's what God's done. And that was really one of the things that prompted me to write the book. God was bringing into my life pastors who are going through hurt. They heard my story. They call me. They want to talk. And suddenly... I have this whole new ministry that I never dreamed I would ever have. And God gave me a passion for it to want to help pastors who are going through this type of hurt. And here's why, because just about every pastor will experience the cave at some point. The sad part is percentage wise, many of them get out of ministry. And what I want to say to them is this, the cave may be part of your story, but it doesn't have to be the end of your story. There's life after the cave. And just because you're in your cave doesn't change your calling. And uh, so I wanna help pastors get through the cave experience and back into ministry. I had a guy call me just today. I helped him out several years ago and he's in ministry again. And he was sharing me all that God was doing in his life. And that was rewarding for me to hear that. I didn't expect that. 
that was part of the cave experience. I love that. It, it, it's awesome to hear those inspirational stories coming out of a resource. And I want to give you a moment just to talk about that resource, your book. Uh, where can people find out more about you and, and get your book? Yeah, the book's available online wherever they buy their books, Amazon, Books A Million, Barnes & Noble. Now, I guarantee you, you go down to your local bookstore, you're not going to find it on the shelf, but they can even order it for you. So the book's widely available that way. And, uh, and personally, me personally, and, and you know, Nate, I'm sure you can put in the contact information in your show notes, but if anybody would like to contact me personally, maybe you're a a pastor, maybe you're in ministry and you're going through a cave experience and you just need to talk to someone who's been there, who understands. The whole goal of the book was to offer spiritual hope and practical help. Uh, the book does not, it's not a tell-all. I don't share, here's all the ways I got hurt. That's irrelevant. I share, here's what I learned. Here's the steps God gave me that I think can help you as well. And, and Nate, I'll say this, if, if there's a pastor out there that's hurting, going through a cave experience, don't worry about buying the book. You contact me, I'll send you a copy of the book because that's why I wrote it. I want to help hurting pastors. That's awesome. And, and so listeners, if check the show notes on this because we'll have contact information for, for Scott. Um, and, and you can get a free resource there, but also go out and, and buy that as well so we can keep that resource going. Uh one way that I like to uh, close these episodes, um, and we talked about a lot today, um, but I like to give you, the guest, the opportunity to speak directly to the listeners as we as we close. And if you could tell our listeners just one thing about what we've talked about today, something you want them to really remember uh, from Scott, what would that be? I would say this, God doesn't waste anything. I want you to remember that God doesn't waste anything. Even trials that you go through, hurts, brokenness, betrayal, all those things that we consider to be bad and negative, and they are. We serve a God who literally can work all things together for good, Nate, and God does not waste anything. If there's been a hurt in your life, a trial, a pain, a heartache, a sorrow, don't give up on God. God, he, he used it in the life of Elijah. He used it in the life of Joseph. He used it in my life and thousands of others. God doesn't waste anything. Whatever you do, don't give up on God. I love it. That's a, that's a great way to end. Um, and, and there's more in the show notes from Scott Disler. Uh, Scott, thank you for coming on Grace Story Podcast today and sharing with the Grace Story community. Thank you, Nate. Good to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Grace Story Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Scott Disler. Um, a lot there to bite into and, and work through, and a lot of it connecting with previous episodes. Uh, so if you did hear some of those connections, go back and check out those by Chrissy Garland and, and some of the others that uh, had some connection here. 
all of the resources and the education that we go through here does have a connection, uh, has a through line, and it's all for that journey of restoration that each one of us, including me, uh, we're all on together. Um, so I'm glad you're on that journey with me. Um, I love being able to learn right alongside you with this podcast and all the great guests that we have coming in. Now, speaking of great guests, uh, we have a good guest lined up for you next uh, in the next two weeks. So I hope you'll come back in two weeks and uh, see us again. There is no us without you. You are what makes Grace Story Grace Story. Uh, so share this episode, share this podcast, share the resources, grow the community. Uh, we hope that you'll continue on your journey of restoration. Uh, we'll see you in two weeks. And until then, we'll be praying for you. See you then.